you now to turn to uh, several chapters, several books in the, uh, the Bible here. Genesis chapter 1, Matthew chapter 19, Romans chapter 1, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll read those again. Genesis chapter 1. Matthew 19, Romans 1, and 1 Corinthians 6. So you have a bookmark or a piece of paper or ribbons. I only have three ribbons and I gave me four passages here. So, And let me, let me preface, normally we're in, uh, we're in a series right now in the Gospel of John. Um, but we're, we're, changing, we're changing it a little bit this morning. Um, let me give you the backstory for why we're putting the John series on pars for just this week, for just this week. Um, how many of you are uh, familiar with uh, like, uh, John MacArthur? John MacArthur. Um, and how many of you are familiar with James Coates? Do you remember James Coates, the Canadian pastor, right? And so he, he kind of uh, became um, well-known a year ago for his sermon that he preached. He's a Canadian pastor, and the Canadian government was locking down all churches. We're not allowing churches to meet. And uh, he gave a sermon giving the rationale or the basis for uh, when, I mean, Christians are to, to be obedient to, to the government, we're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities because God has placed those governmental authorities over us. However, he, he wanted to lay the case out for biblically when the government has crossed its boundaries, when it's, when it's gone outside of its lane and is, was, re, was requiring things that, um, that Christians should not obey or when it was um, making, uh, making illegal things that Christians should do. And uh, that game came to prominence. Well, James Coates wrote an email this uh, uh, several weeks ago to John MacArthur explaining the situation of what's happening in Canada with a, a bill, a piece of legislation known as C4. And let me just read to you a little bit of background here from, a, from an article about it. Um, the Canadian pastors are warning about this new bill, conversion therapy bill, that was just passed in Parliament. And what this conversion therapy bill functionally will do, it will ban pastors from teaching that uh, homosexuality uh, and transgenderism are sins. It will make those illegal. So again, reading from the article, the bill in question known as C4 unanimously passed the House of uh, both the House of Commons and the Senate before receiving royal assent on December 8th, meaning it will become officially become Canadian law on January 8th. On the surface, it meant to outlaw conversion therapies, that is psychological treatments intended to retrain same-sex attracted people to prefer opposite sex and individuals who believe they're transgender. Uh, to embrace their biological sex. So it's, it's prohibiting those things. When approached in a coercive or abusive manner, nearly all mainstream 
uh, Christian denominations would also condemn such things. However, the critics say that this language is too broad and it also effectively bans preaching or teaching based on what the biblical sexual ethics are. So, for instance, it could uh, prevent counseling. Any sort of Christian counseling that references the Old Testament or New Testament passages that demonstrates that God's design, proper design for, for sexual relations is between one man and one woman in a bond of marriage. And so it is effectively criminalizing any attempts to proclaim what the Bible would say about human sexuality. Even further, the bill makes it a crime for parents to provide Christian therapy to their children uh, who are suffering from gender dysphoria. It prevents pastors and other religious leaders from offering biblical counseling. And the violations carry a penalty of up to five years in prison. So the, uh, the pastor informed his, his friend, uh, John MacArthur, about this. And John MacArthur uh, kind of issued a call for Christian pastors to talk about that talk about what is the biblical standard for human sexuality. What does God's word have to say about it? Now, initially, I, I, and they gave a form that you could go and sign the statement saying you, you agree with it. And, and I did so. I, I went and I gladly signed the statement. And then I was going to continue on with the series in John. But as we got closer to this Sunday, I thought, you know, I, I think I, I will like to join um, these other pastors in teaching about this today. Uh, they designated January 16th as a day for pastors to do that, which is, which is today. So today what I'd like to do is read through several of these passages. I may make some comments on them as we're reading. And then I would like to read to you from uh, our uh, current belief statement regarding these things. Uh, and then a couple of other statements. I'd like to read some sections from that. And then uh, to close with some, some final thoughts on this. Okay, so it's a little unusual. It's not our normal, uh, typical Sunday. We'll resume in our series in John next week. But if you would bear with me today, just to make this clear um, for all of us um, today, um, let's hear what God's Word has to say. Let's begin with the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, where Genesis 1 recounts, tells for us the the creative act of God in creating the universe. Of course, he did this in, uh, in six days. The key to this understanding this uh, passage, I believe, is when it says in uh, verse 2 that the earth was formed without form and void. Um, so without structure or without, uh, and without substance. And so the next three days... Um, are addressing both the structure and the substance. So uh, God separates the uh, sky above from the sky below. He does some separating and giving some structure to some things. In day number one, so if you wanted to remember what these are, day number one, he separates light from dark. He separates uh, the, uh, on day two, he separates the water's, Above from the waters below, the expanse above, which is the sky and the waters. And then on day three, he separates 
the water from the dry ground, and then he correspondingly fills each of those things that he has just provided structure to. So he separated light from darkness on day one. Well, then on day four, he puts the, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He fills the, uh, the expanse, the structure he created on day two with the sky and the water by filling it with uh, birds that fly in the air and um, creatures that will swim in the sea. And then on day six, he fills with all of the creeping, crawling things, the beasts of the field on the, on the dry ground. And then it culminates in day six with the creation of man. More Hebrew words are in that section than anything else, showing that mankind is the supreme pinnacle of his creation. Indeed, it says in verse 26 of chapter 1, that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds uh, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. After he separated everything and he filled all of those things and he says, and mankind under my authority has dominion over all of those things. And none of those things are said to have been made in the image of God. Only man is said to be made in the image of God. And then verse 27 and 28, it says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In chapter 2, we get a further description of this creation of man in his image. In particular, the creation of them as male and female. Notice what it says in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Chapter 1, 27, it said God you know, created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Very explicitly there. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it goes into greater detail. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it to a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here is the picture of the creation of human beings, male and female, and also the, in, the establishment of the institution of marriage by God's design. From, beginning, from the very beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the entrance of the fall and evil and sin into the world. Marriage predates that. It predates that. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And Jesus, in answering this question, establishes and reaffirms even, uh, even more strongly what we have just learned about the differences between men and women, the appropriate forms for for sexual relations and marriage. Notice what Jesus says, how he answers these Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So here Jesus is, uh, they're asking him a question about the reasons or rationale for divorce. And Jesus answers by going back to the very beginning and is saying, let me remind you what marriage is from the beginning. Did you catch that? He accuses me. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's the basis for his answer. And he quotes from that passage. And Jesus here, he's actually putting the two together. The one who created them is also the one who says those words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The passage in Genesis doesn't explicitly say that the Lord says it. But just because it's in the Bible, Jesus says it's God who spoke it. And therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now let's look at Romans chapter 1. 
and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I had just mentioned Genesis chapter 3 with the entrance of uh, the fall. It's refer, usually referred theologically as the fall, the fall of man into sin. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to Romans, talks about the consequences of that fall. That all persons, he explains this a little bit later in Romans, that all persons are guilty because of what Adam has done, and they sin because that is now their nature. Okay, we're, not, we're not sinners because we, we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's a part of our nature, fallen in Adam. And so Paul explains in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Stop for a moment and notice what is there, what we just read, and in light of what we just understood from Genesis chapter 1. God had created all of the world, gave structure to all of it, and then filled it with birds of the air, fish of the sea, and creeping things that crawl along the ground, and had given mankind dominion over all of it as his image bearer over all of these things. Look at the absolute reversal of God's order that takes place here according to the Apostle Paul. He says... They, they say, you know what, we're to rule under God's authority according to what his law stipulates. And ever since the fall, what ends up happening is they reject God. They know he exists, but they're going to suppress the truth about him. And then they take all of the things over which they are to have dominion and they make them deities. They worship the, cre the creeping things that crawl along the ground. They exchange the glory for God for images. They glorify images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice the, the absolute reversal. It's what we see playing out in our world today. Paul continues, Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Notice what's here. This, this, this becomes a picture, this great reversal and the perversion of God's design for human, human relationships, human sexual relationships and with marriage all stems from an idolatry of self. But it's not limited to just those things. Paul says everything, all manner of unrighteousness stems from this perversion of God's created order and for us rejecting God and then pursuing ourselves and the created things as uh, the things that we will glory in. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind what ought, to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faith, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And lastly, Rome, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9. Where the Apostle Paul writing to a, a different church, this, this to the church at Corinth, which is near Athens, church he had worked at and spent much time there, writing back to them and says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice he says this twice. The kingdom of God when Christ will fully establish when he comes back, that there are some who will not be permitted to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he mentions this twice, and he tells them, hey, don't deceive yourselves in this matter. And he lists these. Sexual immorality, idolatry, adulterers, uh, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, if you can see the footnote there too, there's actually... That's just a, a paraphrasing of two Greek terms, as you can see in the footnote there, referring one referring to the passive and one referring to the active.
He continues in this, in verse 11. And this is key. And such were some of you. He's writing to a church of believers in Jesus Christ who were a part of all of the groups that he mentioned there. And such were some of you. Some of you were sexually immoral. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were engaged in homosexuality. Some of you were thieves. Some were greedy. Some were drunkards. Some were revilers. Some were swindlers. But, he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Really an amazing verse. Verse 11. Washed, sanctified, and justified. This is what the gospel does. And we'll explain this a little bit more. But this is what the gospel does to a person. The gospel, by the Spirit of God, changes a person's nature. They go from being in Adam who rejects God and takes all of the created things and glories in them and worships them and fashions them according to their own image and their own desires and their own passions. And it takes a person who does that and gives them a brand new nature to put to death that sinful inclination in them and by faith in Christ are being made new and renewed by the Holy Spirit. This is a profound verse. And in the context of this morning and what I had just read about legislation in Canada and don't think that this is going to be limited to just Canada. That that sort of transformation telling somebody about the possibility of that transformation will be illegal. To explain to somebody that these sorts of behaviors will not inherit the kingdom of God and that what you need is to be born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you will be washed, you will be sanctified, and you will be justified that is forbidden. That's what's happening. So the challenge for us today is to remind ourselves of what these, the truth of what the Bible says about these things and for us to maintain conviction about saying these things. So let me just read to you some statements. Let me begin one with uh, a section from our own belief statement and then there's a couple of statements, and if you would like to, I, I didn't have time to print these all out. I would have printed these and make them available, but you could find them. And let me give you the names of them now. Here's two statements, both of which I have signed. Uh, you don't have to sign it, but if you would like to know, well, what does Pastor Aaron think about what the Bible says about these things? These two statements, I think, give a great uh, full Accounting of that. And the first one is the Nashville, the Nashville Statement. The Nashville Statement. 
And if you type in the Nashville statement, you could go to the website and you could see it. You could see um, all of the 14 articles of the, the Nashville statement. And how these are usually written is that they, they affirm something and deny something in very clear language. So I'm going to read to you the, the preamble for the Nashville statement and then another statement, and that is this, the statement on social justice and the gospel. The statement on social justice and the gospel. The Nashville one is dealing just with human sexuality. Uh, the statement on social justice and the gospel is a little bit broader um, to address other things, not just human sexuality, but also um, issues of what justice is and how does the gospel intersect with that. So those two statements. But let me begin with a, a paragraph from our belief statement. It says this, we believe that God created human beings, male and female, in his own image. Adam and Eve belonged to the created order that God himself declared to be very good. Serving as God's agents to care for, manage, and govern creation. And living in holy, devoted fellowship with their maker. Men and women, equally made in the image of God, enjoy equal access to God by faith in Christ Jesus, and both are called to move beyond passive self-indulgence to significant private and public engagement in family, church, and civic life. Adam and Eve were made to complement each other in one flesh union that establishes the only normative pattern of sexual relations for men and women. Such that marriage ultimately serves as a type of union between Christ and his church. It's in Ephesians 5. In God's wise purposes, men and women are not simply interchangeable. But rather they complement each other in mutually enriching ways. God ordains that they assume distinct roles which reflect the loving relationship between Christ and his church. The husband exercising headship in a way that displays the caring, sacrificial love of Christ. The wife submitting to her husband in a way that models the love of Christ for her Lord. And in the ministry of the church, both men and women are encouraged to serve Christ, to be developed to their full potential in the manifold ministries of the people of God. That's from our own belief statement. Here is what I would like to read from the beginning of the Nashville statement. And this one's a little long and I'll read shorter pieces of other things here in a moment. Evangelical Christians at the dawn of the 21st century find themselves living in a period of historic transition. Anybody disagree with that? As Western culture has become increasingly post-Christian, it has embarked upon a massive revision of what it means to be a human being. That's what's happening. A massive revision of what it means to be a human being. By and large, the spirit of our age no longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for his glory. And that his good purposes for us include our personal and physical design as male and female. 
It is common to think that human identity as male and female is not part of God's beautiful plan, but is rather an expression of an individual's autonomous preference. The pathway to full and lasting joy through God's good design for his creatures is thus replaced by the path of short-sighted alternatives that sooner or later ruin human life and dishonor God. This secular spirit of our age presents a great challenge to the Christian church. Will the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lose her biblical conviction, clarity, and courage and blend into the spirit of the age? Aside here, you're seeing this happen weekly. Or will she hold fast to the word of life, draw courage from Jesus, and unashamedly proclaim his way as the way of life? That's the question. Will she, remain, will she maintain her clear countercultural witness to a world that seems bent on ruin? Let me just say here, friends, I hope that we are the latter of this. That we will hold fast to the word, we will draw courage from Jesus and proclaim him in a clear countercultural witness to the world. The statement goes on. We are persuaded that faithfulness in our generation means declaring once again the true story of the world and of our place in it, particularly as male and female. Christian scripture teaches there is but one God who alone is creator and Lord of all. To him alone, every person owes glad-hearted thanksgiving, heartfelt praise, and total allegiance this is the path not only of glorifying God, but of knowing ourselves. To forget our creator is to forget who we are, for he made us for himself. And we cannot know ourselves truly without truly knowing him who made us. And that's, that is where we're seeing is the, the ultimate source of all of the unraveling that's happening today. People don't know who they are because they don't know God who made them. We did not make ourselves. We are not our own. Our true identity as male and female persons is given by God. It is not only foolish but hopeless to try to make ourselves what God did not create us to be. We believe that God's design for his creation and his way of salvation serve to bring him the greatest glory and bring us the greatest good. God's good plan provides us with the greatest freedom. Jesus said that he came that we might have life and have it in overflowing measure. He is for us, not against us. Therefore, in the hope of serving Christ's church and witnessing publicly to the good purposes of God for human sexuality, revealed in Christian scripture, we offer the following affirmations and denials. And so I would encourage you to go and download these affirmations and denials. I'll come back to a couple of those here in a moment. 
But let me read to you a couple from the other statement, the statement on social justice and the gospel. Let me begin with their statement on sexuality and marriage. I'll go out of order here a little. Where they would affirm, quote, we affirm that God created mankind, male and female, and that this is divinely determined. Distinction is good, it's proper, and must be celebrated. Maleness and femaleness are biologically determined at conception and not subject to change. The curse of sin results in sinful Disordered affections that manifest in some people uh, as same-sex attraction. Salvation grants sanctifying power to renounce such dishonorable affections as sinful and to mortify them by the Spirit. We further affirm that God's design for marriage is that one woman and one man live in a one flesh covenantal sexual relationship until separated by death. Those who lack the desire or opportunity for marriage are called to serve God in singleness and chastity. This is as noble as the calling of marriage. Those are the affirmations. Here's what they would deny. And we would deny, I likewise would deny. We deny that human sexuality is a socially constructed concept. We also deny that one's sex can be fluid. We deny that. We reject, quote, gay Christian as a legitimate biblical category. We further deny that any kind of partnership or union can properly be called marriage other than one man and one woman in lifelong covenant together. And we further deny that people should be identified as sexual minorities, which serves as a cultural classification rather than one that honors the image-bearing character of human sexuality as created by God. And then let me read a couple of articles from back to the Nashville Statement. We affirm that And it's important to notice here, as we are laying out what God's standard is for human sexual relationships, we are declaring publicly that we will continue to maintain what the Bible calls as sin, sin. And we will not be ashamed to do so. But we do so with the utmost love and concern, not only for God's truth, but for the soul of those who need to hear. That's why we do this, not out of mean-spiritedness or or spite or, or evil. We do it so that, and because, so that they could experience the true transformation that comes from the gospel of knowing Christ, that they can, in fact, be reborn and made again as a new creation through the work of Christ on the cross. And that's what these articles want to make clear. Article 12, we affirm that the grace of God in Christ 
gives both merciful pardon and transforming power. And that this pardon and power enable a follower of Jesus to put to death sinful desires and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We deny that the grace of God in Christ is insufficient to forgive all sexual sins and to give power for holiness to every believer who feels drawn into sexual sin. Article 13. We affirm that the grace of God in Christ enables sinners to forsake transgender self-conception and by divine forbearance to accept the God-ordained link between one's biological sex and one's self-conception as male and female. We deny that the grace of God in Christ sanctions self-conceptions that are at odds with God's revealed will. And lastly, Article 14, we affirm that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And that through Christ's death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life are available to every person who repents of sin and trusts in Christ alone as Savior, Lord, and supreme treasure. We deny that the Lord's arm is too short to save or that any sinner is beyond his reach. Amen? Amen. So why have I spent so much time reading those things? Well, like I stated a little bit earlier, as it's happening all over, and Canada is just one little spot. It's, it's, and you've heard me warn of this at, uh, at various times throughout the years that this was coming, and you feel like it's, it's getting closer and closer to the door. Here's the thing. To share what I just shared, the sinfulness of the disordering of God's design for human beings and sexuality, and the proclamation of the gospel as the only hope for forgiveness and transformation of all of that, will be illegal. To share that will be illegal. I said, I said this years ago, and I always knew it was going to be down the road. Um, and even here in this country, maybe it's a little bit further down the road, but it's coming. And it's illegal for me to just share what I just shared to you. It will be. So there's two things we could do. We fight that. We fight it by continuing to maintain what the truth of God is. We fight the governing authorities that are continuing to push this by telling the governing authorities, your role as a servant of the Lord, according to Romans 13, is to do what the Lord wills to do. To the extent that your authority as a governing authority over, over people departs from the truth of God, you're really stepping outside of your lane. We do need to bring, as our responsibility, to bring what God's word says to their mandates and dictates. So we fight it. 
Number two, they may overpower us. They may make it illegal. They may win in a temporal sphere. In which case, then we'll get arrested. Because I'm not going to continue, I'm not going to stop diagnosing mankind's problem and prescribing mankind's solution. If that is made illegal, that is the, the blood of the soul, <laughs> the souls of all of those who are damned for this sort of thing will be on the people who make these things illegal. But uh, it's not going to be on me. And I hope it's not on any of you either. So I, I invite you to fight with me and to be willing to lay down your life for the truth of the gospel. Why? Because it's really the only hope this world has at this point. It's the only hope this world has. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we truly are grateful for your word and what your word has taught us this morning. We thank you for this reminder of your design for humanity. That in your wisdom, you structured the world in this way and created human beings in your image that you've made us from the beginning, male and female, and that you've done it out of your good design and your perfect wisdom. And God, this, as we're seeing the fall of Adam play out into our world and the increasingness of wickedness and unrighteousness in the world as people continue to marginalize you and your rightful place as ruler over all, that your revelation to us, your word is maligned and sidelined, that we're seeing the expanse of the effects of the fall and as it's unraveling the very foundational institutions of our society. God, we thank you that you have given a solution. That in the fullness of time, you have demonstrated your righteousness that is available to all through your son, Jesus Christ, and his death and his resurrection. That all who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ can be forgiven and made new and can begin the process of transformation by the Spirit of God into the image of God as restored in the image of your Son, Jesus. God, I pray that you give us all the courage and the conviction that is required in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead 
as the world will continue to seek out and crush those who would go against the prevailing orthodoxy. God, pray that you give us the courage, the conviction, the strength, and the perseverance to hold fast to what your word says and to simply state the truth. For it really is the only hope. Help us to do that in Christ's mighty name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Since it's 11.40, uh, let's plan on lining up, getting in your cars, warmed up, and lining up to go to the uh, Zylstras to, to pray. Uh, so we got about 20 minutes to kind of clean up here and have our conversations, and I'll, about a couple minutes too, I'll give kind of the shout out to everybody for us to, uh, to make our way outside to line up, uh, if you'd like to join us in prayer for the Zarens. Um, Friends, let's stand for our closing benediction. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.